This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. to you on this Tuesday the 15th of August. How are things going out at your place? Have you had the rain you're after or are you still keeping your fingers crossed for some more? 0448 922604. Help me paint a picture of the state this afternoon. What has the rainfall been like compared to average in your neck of the woods? Text in 0448-922-604. After the news headlines, you'll head out to Pindar in the Midwest, just east of Geraldton, where things had started pretty promising heading into seeding. But since then, the tap has been turned off. You'll hear what the country is looking like now. Also, there's been a lot of discussion around wild dogs and dingoes and the impact of wild dog control right around Australia for years now. Before half past 12, you hear about some of the pretty extensive research showing that WA still has pure dingoes despite the controls. 40 plus years of lethal control within the MRVC, we still have pure dingoes. And during our 11 years of sampling, that has not changed. You'll hear more about that shortly. And again, that text line 0448922604 if you'd like to share your thoughts with the Country Hour today. Michelle Stanley along this afternoon, it is 7 past 12. There could be a major change on the way for the mango industry which would impact mangoes being imported into Western Australia. Alice Marshall has been following this story. Alice, what is this change being proposed? Afternoon, Michelle. In news that it just came out this morning from the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority, probably better known as the APVMA, they've proposed to suspend the use of the pesticide dimethoate. And that's suspending it as used as a post-harvest dip treatment. Now, for context around that one, that's the main pesticide that's used for any fruit with an inedible peel to prevent the movement of the Queensland fruit fly. And this kind of treatment is a key import condition when it comes to getting fruit into WA. Why is the APVMA proposing this suspension of dimethoate as a post-dip harvest? Yeah, so this proposal comes after the APVMA received reports from Biosecurity Queensland of dimethoate residue levels higher than what's permitted on both avocados and mangoes ready for sale. It's important to note here that further investigations of these high residue levels found that the growers were applying the dimethoate chemical according to label instructions, so doing nothing wrong, and the further investigation didn't find any patterns like around the pH of the chemical, the chemicals manufacturers or the age of the product to explain why these high residue levels were occurring. So the APVMA are currently considering it a consumer safety risk associated with the current use of this pesticide. Okay, so potential, p- potentially a suspension of the use of dimethoate as a post-harvest dip. Um, and you've mentioned that's important for sort of import conditions coming into getting fruit into WA. How could this impact the growers across Australia? Yeah, so any WA mango grower knows that 
plenty of Northern Territory and Queensland mangoes enter the WA market at any time. And that market's a key one to sort of even out the supply and demand across the country. So there are a few other treatment options that would allow those interstate mangoes to still come into WA, but they are logistically pretty tricky. Vapor heat treatment is one that keeps being spoken about as an alternative that WA will allow treated mangoes to come into the state with. The only processing facility for that one is in in the north, is in Darwin. So think of those growers in Catherine potentially trucking their mangoes back to Darwin only to come back through Catherine again to get to Kununurra and then down to Perth. There's also a methyl bromide treatment option. The treatment plant for that's in Adelaide, so even further. There's a fumigation treatment option. That also is in South Australia. The other thing with these alternative treatments is they're not the main treatments for a reason, and that reason is is cost. Here's Brett Kelly. He's the CEO of the Australian Mango Industry Association, and he explained some of that extra cost that we might be seeing. We actually had a discussion on this yesterday, and we're actually doing some work to get an idea of what those numbers are. But at this point, you know, I, I can't give you specifically what the the difference in costs, only to say that it, it will be because of short notice. And as you know, the season's about to start. Um, there will be added cost to um, to do, you know, whether we do it, whether the growers do it through VHT or whether they send it and have it um, fumigated when it arrives in West Australia. But we're just not sure that the closest number I've been given is that it could be, you know, anywhere up to um, an extra $10 per tray. That's Brett Kelly. He's the CEO of AMIA, the Australian Mango Industry Association, saying they could be looking at an extra production cost of $10 per tray. Been speaking to a couple of mango growers in Queensland who say that getting $18 for a tray of mangoes is, is pretty regular, pretty okay. So add another $10 onto that. We're talking about going up by more than 50%. And speaking to some growers here in northern WA who also grow mangoes in the Northern Territory and they're being very nervous saying that that $10 figure by Brett Kelly there could be very conservative. Right, so it could even be higher than $10 additional cost for those other methods. Now, if this suspension goes ahead, it's not going to be impossible to get mangoes into WA from interstate, from Queensland, from the Territory, but it is going to be a little bit harder by what you've been hearing and more expensive, as you've said. So where would that leave WA mango growers? Yeah, so it's almost a tale of two sides of the country here where you've got mango growers in in the NT and and Queensland crying out over this news and you've got WA mango growers going, hang on a second, could this be good for us? We know from seasons like last year that the influx of Northern Territory mangoes into the WA market came at just the wrong time for WA growers and it's looking like that could be the same this year with a later season from the NT in Queensland coinciding with like the start of the season here in WA which is only six six to eight weeks away from harvest. Say that this did go ahead and we had potentially less mangoes from the those eastern states coming over that would mean a undersupply in the WA market which could mean 
better prices for those WA growers and also a, a bit more room to move in their own market. Have you heard about, you know, does, does WA have the, the stock to actually be able to fill supermarket shelves from your understanding? Well, essentially the answer is we don't quite know yet. What we do know from speaking to a couple of growers up here in the Kimberley is that people, growers have been getting calls from, from the major supermarkets in WA and those major supermarkets have been essentially trying to, to shore up their, their own state's supply. So take what you will from that. I'm, I suppose, taking that supermarkets in WA might be a bit concerned of where they are going to get their supply from. Do you think that consumers would be missing out on mangoes this season? Are there still going to be some around for, you know, the mango lovers of, of WA? Oh, there definitely will. And we do have some fantastic quality mangoes that come out of WA. I've been driving around here, around Kununurra, and we've heard even a couple of weeks ago on the radio, the mango season started relatively well here. We got some cool temperatures to kick off the flowering and there will definitely be those local WA mangoes coming into the market as they do every year. We're just not quite sure about how many we'll have coming in from interstate. And what about prices? Do you know at this stage? Look, Michelle, I'm, I'm definitely no economist and neither can I predict the future. But the laws of supply and demand would dictate that if we have less supply of mangoes coming into supermarket shelves here in WA, that they will go up in price. That's, that's just my take on it. As I say, no economist, but supply and demand would say they will go up a little bit. Yeah, it'll be an interesting one to watch. And this also, it doesn't just impact mangoes. Other fruits may be tied up in this as well, isn't that right? Yeah, so as I mentioned right at the top there, it's any fruit with an inedible skin. So think of melons, think of avocados, think of citrus fruits. I know that there has been a a Queensland watermelon grower who has already expressed concern about what this potential proposed suspension will mean for some of his trade internationally into New Zealand. I guess the reason we're talking about mangoes so predominantly right now is because we are right on the edge of coming into that season and it it really is dropped on those mango growers maybe right at the worst time of the year. Right, so is this a done deal, Alice? Is this suspension going to go ahead? It's not a done deal yet. It's The APVMA still have it up for comment for the next two weeks. So it only dropped today. They've given up to two weeks where you can comment on, on how you feel about it and in the meantime, dimethoate can still be used. It can still be used both pre-harvest and post-harvest. Thank you so much for that overview, Alice Marshall. She's the rural reporter based up in Kununurra. And bringing you that news just out this morning from the APVMA that it's proposed to suspend the use of dimethoate as a post-harvest dip for fruit with inedible peel, things like uh, mangoes, in particular avocados. And obviously that is a, a key import requirement for uh, fruit coming into WA. There are a few alternatives for fruit coming into WA, but um, dimethoate used as a post-harvest dip is one of the key ones used by growers right across Australia. So 
how will this impact things? We'll have to wait and see, but you do have two weeks to put forward your submissions on that. If you search APVMA Domethoate, it should pop up. Uh, Tony Madden has about 4,500 mango trees at Gingin. It's just north of Perth. Tony, what's been your reaction to this news? G'day, Michelle. Uh, well, obviously, if their production cost is going to increase, um, what fruit does come in interstate uh, into our market or uh, from interstate into our market uh, will come into a higher price and they tend to set the benchmark uh, of prices because their fruit hits our market uh, earlier than, uh, than ours. So uh, that could be a good thing for us. They are different markets, though, particularly for you in Gingin and Carnarvon as well, kind of coming in at the new year. The mango harvest is getting underway in the Territory this week and your mangoes typically hitting the shelves in sort of February or March. Do you think that would still result in better prices for growers in your area? Well, there's that possibility, yes. How how much of an increase would you be maybe expecting if you hear that the the uh, increased cost could be say ten bucks a tray? Oh, Michelle, that's a moot point. I mean, the um, the resell the big resellers retailers tend to uh, set a limit on what they'll pay, and uh, if the price for them is too high, they just uh, just won't buy it. So uh, you know, that'll reduce the amount of fruit in the market that they'll take into the market. Um, the other thing is that uh, if they do uh, push their prices, you know, make the unprecedented move of pushing their prices up, uh, their wholesale prices, uh, they've obviously got to retail at a higher price, which will reduce the volume uh, that's sold in this uh, cost-conscious market at present, which uh, which will reduce the, uh, the amount that the growers can put into the market. If prices for WA-grown mangoes did go up significantly, how do you think industry would react? Sorry, you'll have to say that again. If the prices for WA-grown mangoes went up, how would industry react to that? Could could people plant more and, and try and you know, capitalise on higher prices? Oh, it's been a fickle market for many years, Michelle, so I don't think there'd be any real enthusiasm for uh, for more plantings. I mean, uh, when our fruit's on the market, there's a bit of a glut. and uh, No, I can't see there being more plantings as a consequence of uh, an increase in price. <laughs> You might actually just enjoy some higher prices for once. Exactly, it'll be a change. Did you know this was coming, Tony? No, the first I heard of it was this morning. Right, so are you surprised by it? Um, not with the Methoate. I mean, the Methoate's a, uh, a tricky product to uh, to deal with, so it doesn't surprise me that they're, uh, they're homing in on the Dimethoate. We're talking specifically about dimethoate being used as a post-harvest dip um, for fruit with inedible peel, things like mangoes, avocados. But do you use that? Is this potential suspension going to impact any of the operations on, on your property? No, not at all. We don't use dimethoate because we haven't got a problem with Queensland fruit fly, thank God. Well, that's lucky for you then. Uh, Tony, Madden, thank you so much for your time on the Country Hour today. Okay, Michelle. Cheers. He has about 4,500 mango trees at Jinjin, just north of Perth. And we are talking about dimethoate being used as a post-harvest dip. Uh, the APVMA proposing to suspend that usage of it. It is all around Q-fly, Queensland fruit fly, which thankfully isn't a huge problem in WA, but um, it is a, a key ex uh, import rather, import requirement for fruit coming into WA. And if that is suspended, where will that leave interstate growers who do export their fruit over here? We will keep an eye on that and see how that 
uh, is impacted over the next couple of weeks with more information coming to light. That news just dropping today that the APVMA proposing to suspend the use of dimethoate as a post-harvest dip. It's 21 past 12. Tree Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Good to have you along this afternoon. An 11-year study of DNA patterns in Western Australia has shown lethal control of dingoes does not decrease their population's purity. In other words, we still have pure dingoes. The study was conducted in the Murchison Regional Vermin Cell by Dr Tracy Kreplins from the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development. She says the results from this research show lethal control of dingoes does not accelerate hybridisation. We were trying to investigate um, a whole range of genetic characteristics for dingoes and look at whether any of those changed over um, 11 years in an area where they conduct lethal control. So what were you doing? Were you taking a DNA sample of certain dogs in certain areas? How did you actually set it up? So it was a little bit ad hoc. Uh, We were working with all the licensed pest management technicians and pastoralists within that area. We collected DNA samples from dingoes and wild dogs in 2009, 2014 and 2020. So all dogs that were, or dingoes that were um, removed from the landscape for, for agricultural reasons, we took a DNA sample. How many dogs did you sample all up? It was 1,207 DNA samples from those three time periods. So what were the results that you found uh, when you, you said you're looking at the different genetic characteristics and how they may or may not have evolved over time? What did you find? We found no changes in no genetic characteristics over those 11 years in the study period. So all dingoes, they were, what was our numbers? We were 98% of samples were 80% above and above dingo, pure dingoes so, and no other changes in genetic purity or genetic characteristics in the area. And was that the case in your very first sample in 2009, that that just didn't change? It was, yep. They maintained that high level of purity over the entire study period. So what does that show? When you look at that result, it's 11 years of data and you did that within this vermin-proof cell that's in the Murchison. What what do we take away from that? Uh, that conducting lethal control does not impact the conservation of dingoes within Western as well, within the MRVC. And you probably shouldn't expand to WA, but potentially more work needs to be done there. But You can keep conducting dingo and wild dog control within the MIVC for agricultural and conservation purposes and you will not endanger the conservation of dingoes. And you're not essentially creating this hybridised wild dog dingo creature. It's not happening. So there's a theory out there that the more lethal control you conduct on dingoes, you fracture packs apart and create opportunities for hybridisation or accelerate hybridisation. So this work has disputed that theory in this area because despite 40 plus years of lethal control within the MRVC, we still have pure dingoes and during our 11 years of sampling, that has not changed. It is something that you hear, you know, on both sides of the conservation argument, that theory, but I just wonder if this is one of the first studies that actually takes that theory and puts a scientific lens to it. Potentially, but I couldn't say for sure. Yeah. Why is it important, Tracy, to have this data? It's it's eleven years worth of DNA sampling, 
and it, in your mind, proves that lethal control does not accelerate hybridisation of wild dogs and dingoes. Why is that important to have? Uh, it gives us a good insight to dingo and wild dog genetics. Um, it'll help inform management and control strategies in Western Australia and potentially Australia and helps provide valuable um, knowledge for the agriculture and conservation sector looking into predator management. So the definition here we use for wild dogs are free roaming dogs, dingoes and their hybrids. So essentially they're the same species. Um, there's not in like different populations. They're all uh, wild dogs uh, with high dingo purity within that area. Very, very, very few hybrids. So very few dogs in that area that are not 80% plus dingo. Yep, less so, than 2%. So why is it that you see photos and I'm looking at some now that were just taken recently of wild dogs in the MRVC. These were taken near Yalgoo and it doesn't look anything like a dingo. It looks like a Kelpie gone wrong. <laughs> um, it's really hard to assess how pure uh, an individual dog is out in the field without taking a DNA sample. You can't look at an individual and decide whether it's a dingo or a hybrid just by visualising it or just by looking at it. You were doing this uh, dingo DNA study in the MRVC, in the Murchison Vermin Cell. Did you see any impact of that fence and dingo populations and gene flow? Uh, so fencing appears to be a, an effective management tool. It definitely reduces gene flow of dingoes and wild dogs, particularly the state barrier fence. And what were you seeing that was giving you that indication? How do you know that? One of the measures is uh, gene flow, I suppose, and uh, you, you you can rate it from high to low gene flow. And there was a lot lower than what you would expect ac um, across the state barrier fence. Dr Tracy Kreplins from the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development just chatting with Joe Prendergast about an 11-year study of DNA patterns in dingoes. It was carried out in the 6.5 million hectare Murchison Regional Vermin Cell uh, just east of Geraldton in the rangelands. There, it's, um, more, there is more of that story on the ABC Rural website. It's just up on the homepage if you'd like to take a look. 27 past 12, an environmental group has teamed up with the commercial fishing industry to clean up the oceans off the Cocos Keeling Islands. Tangaroa Blue has launched Project Recon, which uses old GPS buoys from the commercial fishing industry to track abandoned fishing nets and help remove them from the ocean. Founder of Tangaroa Blue, Heidi Tate, says old fishing nets can cause significant harm. Project Recon is a new program that we have developed with the help of an international tech company called Satlink that helps us repurpose commercial GPS buoys that we found during cleanups and helps us be able to track ghost nets um, so we don't lose them while we're trying to get a recovery mission underway. So what are ghost nets? Ghost nets are lost or discarded fishing nets that still fish while they're drifting around in, in the ocean. So potentially they can cause way more harm because nobody's supervising them or pulling them out when they need to come out. They can drift onto coral reefs. They can catch a whole heap of different types of wildlife that they're not fishing for. And ultimately, they're more plastic that just ends up in the ocean. Are these ghost nets something you see a lot of on the Cocos Keeling Islands? 
We find a lot of not only ghost nets, but large clumps of rope that include smaller pieces of net that quite often will accumulate together and, and tangle up into these really large, um, I guess, piles of rope, and they can drift together through the water. So it's not just the nets themselves that are on their own, but there's this accumulation of other ropes that form you know, a similar issue with these nets that we find a lot of. What are the actual mechanics of Project Recon? Well, first, first of all, the, the problem with ghost nets is that some of them can be up to the size of a, a football field. Um, and some of these big piles of nets and ropes that we've recovered can be tons in its weight. And if you see one of these floating around while you're out on your, your boat fishing on the day, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to pull that out of the water um, without cranes, davits and, you know, a large boat and lots of people and so what happens is that those nets can be reported uh, of where they were seen last, but quite often by the time a larger vessel is able to go out and recover them, they can't be found anymore. So Project Recon allows people that head out on the water, have their own ves vessels or you know, work in the marine sector to have one of these beacons on their vessel. And in the event that they come across a ghost net, a large chunk of rope or even another large dangerous item, they can attach the beacon directly onto the net. They let us know that they've deployed it and we switch on the GPS tracker so it doesn't get lost while we organise a recovery effort. The other really cool thing with the technology is that we can actually erect virtual fences. So in the event that the net or the large item is drifting towards um, sensitive coral reef or a shipping lane, we can get notifications when it hits a certain distance away from that. And that can enable us to give out warnings for vessels, but also to really escalate the need for a recovery to take place. How did the community go about acquiring these GPS boys? So we called out to the communities on Cocos to start off with, and we already have three beacons that have been recovered uh, where people have found them either washed up on a beach or drifting around with a fish attracting device in the water. So they've let us know what the serial numbers are, and we can then go back to Satlink and we ask them whether the fishing fleets that actually own those trackers are part of Project Recon. And if those fishing fleets have signed up, it means that they've given permission for the ownership of the particular tracker to then be reassigned to Tungaroa Blue. That's the Tungaroa Blue founder, Heidi Tate, speaking with Jane Murphy about Project Recon using those old GPS buoys from commercial fishing to try and track abandoned fishing nets and take them out of the ocean. It's 28 to 1 on the Country Hour. Garrett Mundy is along with some news headlines. Hi, Garrett. Hi, Michelle. In the news, the district attorney in the US state of Georgia says former President Donald Trump has been indicted over criminal attempts to interfere in the administration of that state's 2020 presidential election result. 18 co-defendants have also been indicted, including some of Mr Trump's top supporters, his former lawyer Rudy Giuliani and his former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. The WA government will soon establish a permanent presence in Canberra, which the Premier, Roger Cook, says will help the nation's capital better understand Western Australia. Described as a hub, Mr Cook says it will allow the state to cut through the noise of Canberra's closer neighbours and better advocate for WA interests. WA's lobbying won the state a greater share of GST revenue in 2018 in a deal which continues to 
frustrate other premiers. And Matilda's fans are being targeted by scammers on social media ahead of tomorrow night's FIFA Women's World Cup semi-final against England. The National Anti-Scam Centre is warning of fake ticket sales and people selling bogus live streaming links to matches. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission says it's already seeing reports of scammers responding to people looking for tickets, particularly on Facebook. More news, Michelle, coming up at one o'clock. Thank you very much, Garrett. It's 27 to 1. Uh, in just a moment, talking about well, not just the weather with the Bureau of Meteorology, but checking in on the season in Pindar in particular, because it's been pretty dry. And I'm keen to hear your thoughts on how things are looking out at your place. 0448922604 is the text line. It's a different story for Ian on the south coast he says it's too wet on the south coast at esperance so much for a decile three year 202 mils in june 303 sorry 330 mils for winter so far a month of dry sunny weather would be nice very different picture to how things are looking up in the midwest how are things at your place Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four is the SMS. Luke Huntington is with you now from the Bureau of Meteorology. How are things looking in the Southwest Land Division today, Luke? Yeah, that's where all the weather's happening at the moment, Michelle. So um, we do have a cold front approaching the southwest corner, um, probably due around the southwest Cape somewhere around uh, late afternoon, sort of around that 5, five o'clock p.m. Um, and then getting up to Perth around um, sort of mid-evening, so maybe 9 or 10 o'clock southwest of Perth to Albany. And then it starts to work its way um, across the remainder of the southwest land division um, by midnight and into early tomorrow morning. Um, we are seeing quite a few showers ahead of it as well, particularly near the, near the west coast there. Um, some of the heaviest falls have been focused on that lower west uh, area with some 20 to 40 millimetre falls um, already. And um, in terms of um, falls up to midnight tonight, um, there could be further falls around that, so that 10 to 20 millimetres through the lower west and the southwest districts. Um, through the great southern there, through the western parts, you could get uh, 5 to 10 millimetres. Um, and then it, sh- it should be just reaching the southwestern uh, wheat belt uh, this evening, so maybe uh, 1 to 5 millimetres uh, through that region. Uh, the showers um, at the moment, they're about around uh, southwest of Durian Bay to Bremer Bay, but they will extend up to Shark Bay to Esperance. Uh, by midnight uh, tonight. So, um, and we do have a chance of thunderstorms just ahead of the front as it moves uh, through. So there could be some um, sort of heavier falls um, if you do get a thunderstorm and some gusty winds as it does move through. Um, and then the, the, tomorrow there will also be um, a cold pool behind it and quite a fresh to strong southerly change as it moves uh, through as well. Um, but those showers will sort of clear the west and southwest coasts uh, quite early tomorrow morning. Um, those showers will be persisting probably just into that afternoon period in the Esperance region, but by the evening, uh, any showers be confined to the south coast. Um, as I mentioned, uh, cool conditions behind the front, so only max, maximum temperatures in the sort of the low to mid uh, teens uh, tomorrow, um, and some quite gusty winds, especially around uh, the coastal parts. Um, in terms of rainfall uh, tomorrow, um, only lighter falls as the front moves quickly through. So th- probably around uh, one to five millimetres through most parts, um, maybe a little bit more around the south coast with five to ten millimetres. But again, as I said, that's mostly likely in that morning period um, with the showers clearing around the Esperance area late in the day. Um, as we head into Thursday, the ridge will come in um, quite rapidly. So um, with, the, with the clearing rain, um, 
rainfall and the drier air and clearer skies. Um, it looks like uh, Thursday morning will be quite cold through the, uh, especially through the agricultural areas. So there is a risk of uh, frost through that area. Um, minimum temperatures getting down to zero to two degrees. Um, some of the coldest areas and the greatest risk of frost uh, frost includes Southern Cross, uh, Meriden, Calabaran, Corrigan, Brookton, and Hyden. Um, and then getting into Friday, uh, the ridge just uh, continues to dominate. Um, there is another slight risk of frost on that Friday morning, but probably less likely um, to Thursday. Um, any showers will probably be most likely just along the very south coast um, and only light falls. And then by Saturday, uh, the ridge continues to dominate. Um, any rainfall will be along that coastline between Augusta and Windy Harbour, uh, just in some onshore flow, but again, only light falls expected through that area. How about in northern and eastern forecast districts? Yeah, through the northern parts, it's pretty quiet. So through the Kimberley, uh, the interior and Pilbara area, um, it's generally clear skies at the moment. Um, temperatures warmish through the, through the Kimberley in the interior, getting into the low to mid-30s. Um, I suppose the only significant weather up there um, th for, the, for the rest of the week is um, just as that ridge develops to the south on Thursday, those easterly winds are going to become quite fresh and gusty, particularly through the, the Pilbara and the interior region and through parts of the Gascoigne. So quite windy conditions, especially through the morning and then persisting on Friday and into uh, Saturday with those uh, windy conditions. Um, in terms of the eastern parts of the state, so through the goldfields, Eucla area, um, that front will probably reach the southwest goldfields early tomorrow morning and into the Eucla, but we're only expecting uh, only light falls through that southwestern uh, uh, um, goldfields and into the Eucla. So only up to around um, sort of two millimetres uh, through that area. And the frost does get into that southwestern goldfields on that Thursday morning with temperatures getting down to that near zero degrees. Oh, goodness. Quite widespread, isn't it, then, that frost? Um, warnings around the state. Anything in place this afternoon, Luke? Yeah, we've only got um, coastal wind warnings, and that's, um, yeah, for the front moving through. Thank you very much for that. Luke Huntington from the Bureau of Meteorology. And Richard Hudson is along with some rainfall. Is there been much about Hutto? Certainly not in the northern and eastern forecast districts. Nothing at all worth reading out anywhere. But in the uh, southwest land division forecast districts, uh, nothing worth mentioning in the central west. There was nothing over one mil. In the lower west, though, Ancatel had 12, Araluan 6, Bickley 18, Bungendore 9, Dwelling Up 26, Glen Eagle 12, Huntley 23, Jandicott had 10 mils, Jarradale 11 to 12, Carnot 8, Carrigulla North 17. In Perth, it varied depending upon where you were. So Kings Park had 41, but then some other suburbs had 20s or even less, down to 7 in some. Serpentine, 10. Um, Tam Tamala Park, 6. Wanneroo, 7. Waruna, 11. And then in the southwest, Bailing Up, uh, 5 mils. Beetle Up, 7. Bunbury, 11. Cape Lewin, 5. Carlotta, 11. Collie, 7. Kawaramup, 8. Dardanup had between 10 and 16. Donnybrook, 6 to 8. Ferguson Valley, 16 to 17. Four Acres, 7. Harvey, 18. Hentybrook, 14. Jarrawood and Jindong recorded 5. Carriedale, 7. Logue Brook and Margaret River, 8. Manjimup, 7 to 9. McAlinden, 11. Mount William, 
18. Myler, Newlands and Northcliffe all recorded 5. Pemberton, 8. Perryvale Orchard, 7. Rosabrook, 8. Scott River, 9. Shannon, 5. Thompsonbrook, 6. Walpole Forestry, 5. Warner Glen, 6. Willie Abrupt, 12. Windy Harbour, 16. Yanmar had 8. A lot less in the southern coastal region. The top was Denmark with 7. And then uh, below that, it was four at Albany. In the central wheat belt, there was no rain at all. And then in the Great Southern, Boddington North and Quartering recorded five, Culford 13, Darkin 7, Maradong 12, and Wandering and Wilgarra both recorded eight. Thank you very much for that, Hutto. And it sounds like you probably won't have an awful lot to do for the rest of the week. Maybe take the week off. It's 19 to 1 on the country hour. Uh, now, as you've been hearing, and as is often the case, some sections of Western Australia's grain belt have had good rain. You heard that text from Ian, who's actually hoping for a little bit of a reprieve. Others have had average rain, and unfortunately, some have had hardly any. Crops in the north and east of the grain growing region will be well below the bumper crops harvested for the last two seasons. In fact, some paddocks won't be harvested at all. Mark Flanagan farms at Pindar, almost 400 kilometres north of Perth. You might remember we caught up with him in March when he first started seeding after some good rains. So this week, Joe Prendergast hopped in Mark's ute to see how the farm was looking now because she'd heard that since seeding, it's hardly rained at all. It started off really well in March with good early rain, but then it just disappeared and moisture disappeared. And only the loams and the sandy loams have been able to link up the moisture for us. So the harder hills and the difficult country that doesn't saw a lot of water, they're really um, under big stress at the moment. Good rain last week, 20 to 30 mil, sort of resurrected it a bit. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a disappointing year for what it started out to be. After that start, it is hard to take. That 26 mils that you had last week, did that really save your bacon? Well, it did, yeah. And, and it got probably just in time. We just started to see some stuff going backwards and retreating. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not going to be great. We were sort of hoping for a bit of a reasonable landing off two big seasons, but this was like the helicopter run out of fuel. And, <laughs> yeah, down it went, but... Yeah, it's not, it's not a horror story, but it's certainly difficult, yeah. I'm putting you on the spot here because we are driving, but do you know roughly what rain you've had for the growing season? Well, it varies. Um, where we were uh, just standing there before, there's probably been about 80 mil, including the March rain. But we've got some other blocks that have had 80 mil was the March rain, and then it's another 80 mil for the season. So, you know, it's a stark contrast through the landscape. You've only got to drive... Uh, west of Mullawar and things get better really quickly. Lots of summer rain um, and probably just a whisk of more winter rain. So, yeah, it's not too bad. But as, as you go east and north, it's really tapered off rapidly. You run a fallow system here at Pindar where you're storing moisture one year and then using it the next when you put a crop in. That really would have come to the fore, I imagine, this year in terms of getting you through those really dry periods. Oh, yeah. You know, there would be no crop on that 80 mil. That 80 mil, um, that's not enough to go a crop. You need to get to 120 mil, we believe, somehow. If you can get to 120, you're in with a chance. It's not a lot of rain, 120 mil for the year, but um, 80 mil is, is shy. 
It's the beginning of August, so you've got a couple of months until you start harvest, but what's your expectation for what you'll get off your paddocks? Uh, we sort of think we're sitting around one and a half. We've got some good stuff that's probably closer to two and some stuff that's below a tonne uh, and some stuff's probably not harvestable, some really pretty bad patches that didn't come up very well. But um, I think anything in the sort of 1.2 to 1.5 is going to be a pretty good result. And at 400 bucks plus, um, that's probably going to be the saviour. And will you need more rain to get that or are you comfortable with the water that you've got stored that you can get that one and a half, two tonne now or do you need more rain to achieve that? Oh, 1.2 to 1.5 is our aim. Two tonne is off the table probably now um, unless it rained significantly in the next week and stayed cool. We've had two days over 28 degrees last week. Um, so that's you know the, when the heat comes on, uh, that's when it really um, starts uh, sapping the life out of it. The fallow system that you're using obviously holds moisture, but then you're also really keeping up to date with wheat varieties. Do you reckon that, say, five years ago, you'd be at the point where you, you're looking at 1.2, 1.5 tonne off such a low rainfall year? Probably not, no. The, the wide varieties we use, that long-season valiant wheat crop that went in in April... If that was any other variety, would have done a runner. If we had a delayed sowing, probably wouldn't have got it out of the ground. So it's a bit of a bit of a difficult one. You've got to get it emerged, and and the time frame uh, you can't grow it in a hurry. It needs the time to grow. I think best we do a rain dance for some rain and some cooler weather. A nice cool finish. We've done a lot of different dances in the last <laughs> couple of weeks. <laughs> well, it worked last week, so yeah. just do that again. <laughs> do it again. <laughs> Mark Flanagan, who farms at Pindar, about 30 kilometres east of Mullawar, roughly 400 k's north of Perth. And he had Joe Prendergast in the car showing her how dry his farm is at the moment. And it sounds like some people in parts of WA's grain belt that have had good rain in recent years are struggling mentally this year. And that could be due to all sorts of challenges and stresses. Roger Hitchcock is a rural aid councillor based in Narragin, a few hundred kilometres southeast of Perth. He's noticed more farmers have been accessing mental health services this year, but he says that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's it's to our services and every other service I speak to is the same with flat out and and I've noticed it in this last year and I I put it down to maybe because rural aid is much more known in the in the regions now as well but a lot more people are reaching out and just wanting to talk things through. I, I wish I could pin down or say something that's you know this is the reason why people are calling but it varies it individually. I've I had a lot lot more people this year reach out but that's very positive. That's extremely positive as well remembering that people are reaching out, people are able to talk about it, people are asking for help. So it's great to see so many people with this strength and, and the realisation that, yeah, I do need to talk. But, yeah, there's definitely an increase that I've seen. If there has been an increase, what are you noticing in the last couple of months compared to maybe six months or a, or a year ago, the pressures that are on people? The, the pressures are there. Uh, it's, this is a highly stressful industry, associated industries with farming as well high pressure industries are high demand but now there's some new legislation that's come through from the state government that a lot of people out there are aware of uh what you know the safety laws the, the original heritage act uh then there's the uh the idea of closing down the live export trade 
put that on top of what's already happening on the farm where there's an increased cost in chemicals, which is threefold. So that results in increased cost in production. The costs of, of stock are down. I've um, been talking to some people where they're saying uh, both sheep and cattle right now are well down and some are quoting 50% down. We're now what it's costing them to, to get the, the animal to a certain standard to take to market is, is either bottoming out as what it's costing them or it's costing them actually more to produce than what they're getting back on it. Um, so there's all these different stresses that are coming on top of, of what this year and uh, as a farmer's son I know that you know great luck in having three really good years for most farmers amazing luck this year's looking like an average year for for, for some so yeah there's, there's all those different factors are coming on and, and that's what's adding to more stress more anxiety uh, as well I, I'm finding I've, I've heard the other day on I think it was on, on the radio somewhere that the Great Southern's now a suicide hotspot, which is scary. Yeah, there's yeah, not much more to say about that, but it's 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 a worry. For someone who might not be in a great space right now, what sort of advice do you have? Speak out. Realise there is hope. Reach out. Talk to friends. Talk to family. Realise that speaking out and talking out and reaching out for help is a strength. Takes a hell of a lot of courage to pick up a phone and call me as as a counsellor or to call any other great service in in our region and just say, hey. I'm not travelling very well mentally. Enormous strength. So remember that and challenge those thoughts as what they are. They're thoughts. They're, they're not reality. And remember your family. Uh, remember that one of you, if your value in life is your family or your value in your life is, is your wife or your partner or your values in your life, remember your values in your life. And to people out there, when people come to you and, and say, you know, and the question's asked of them, you're not, you're not considering suicide, are you? Or you're not harming yourself, are you? And they say, yes, listen. Just listen, 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 listen. That's my biggest advice I give people out there. Do not judge. Do not think, why is this person thinking this? Just listen. Let them talk. Don't give them advice on why what they're saying is wrong. Allow them to get it completely off their chest. and Just let them know that you're there. Make a pact with them. I'm here for you. I'm going to call you. You're not to do anything until you've called me. And then you just be there as well and, and I think the biggest thing is listen, listen, listen. That's Roger Hitchcock. He's a counsellor with Rural Aid. He was speaking with Sophie Johnson. I wonder what you think is causing the most stress in regional WA at the moment. Roger Johnson saying that he's noticed more farmers have been accessing mental health services and there are all sorts of reasons this year. What do you think it is? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four is the text line. Last Friday, 45 people went along to a community mental health event held in Kojnup. It was run by a group called SPARK, which stands for Suicide Prevention Around Regional Kojnup. SPARK member Karen Mickle says it was a fantastic event for the whole community. We wanted to hold an event, especially with the amount of angst that sort of we've all been seeing in the agricultural industry over the last year. So we thought that maybe we could have a little men's barbecue and give you know the farmers an opportunity to all get together and just actually be able to chew the fat, so to speak, have a catch up, but use the opportunity to maybe have a couple of speakers to speak on mental health and hard times and give them a few coping skills to get through those times because the ag industry has been seeing so much anxiety and 
people have been a bit low, we felt that we needed the opportunity to get people out mingling in their own environment. So like not at the town hall, but, you know, on farm, in the shed, and been able to talk about the things that, are, that, that actually are troubling them where there's not, not going to be judgmental. Spark Group member Karen Mickle speaking there and you can read more about this story online. Just search ABC Rural Mental Health. And if these stories have raised concerns with you or if anyone you know needs help, there are a few numbers you can contact. You can call Rural Aid on one three hundred one seven five. 594 and the lifeline number is 13 11 14. The WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Seven minutes to one. A WA company behind a new lithium discovery in the Pilbara has rejected a $900 million takeover offer from a Chilean mining giant. Azua Minerals told the ASX today it had received an offer from Chilean chemical company SQM last month for $2.31 per share. Uh, But Azua Minerals says it has not engaged further in further discussions. SQM is the world's biggest lithium producer. Now, it took a 19% stake in Azure earlier this year, a $20 million investment. And since then, Azure's shares have surged more than 1,000%. That's off the back of the Andover Lithium Discovery, south of Robin in the Pilbara. And there are also hopes for a nickel project in that area as well. The stock is trading now around $3 a share. So uh, Azua Minerals rejecting a $900 million takeover offer from Chilean chemical company SQM, the world's biggest lithium producer. But this isn't the first WA lithium miner to reject a major takeover bid in recent times. Back in March, Liontown Resources, you might remember, it's developing a new lithium mine in the northern goldfields. It rejected a $5 billion takeover by US chemical giant Albemarle. So a lot happening in that WA lithium space. Talking about lithium, the company behind a mine, a lithium mine in WA's Great Southern, has plans to expand its operations. Allchem plans to spend $25 million building a 250-bed worker accommodation site. The camp at the Mount Catlin mine near Ravensthorpe was approved by the local Shire Council in July. It'll go before a development assessment panel later this month. Liam Franklin is the head of operations, Australian operations for Allchem, and he says to expand the site, more accommodation is essential. So the Mount Catlin mine has been operating since uh, a restart in 2016, and during that time, it's had a fairly small workforce and a fairly marginal business of, uh, of, of being in lithium. Um, has meant that accommodation has been provided through primarily the the Palace Hotel, our accommodation partners in town. Um, And we've also got a lot of our workforce in a camp, which is just in town, but it's owned by Medallion Metals, which is another mining company, a potential gold operator. So most of our workforce has been uh, okay within those uh, camps. However, the recent announcement of our company to extend the life of Mount Catlin means that we're ready for a ramp up of activity which comes with a ramp up of resources and 
what we're uh, going to find is that the accommodation that's available in the town of Ravensthorpe or even Hopetown won't be sufficient for what we need to do to extend the life of the mine. Uh, and also the accommodation village that we're proposing to build gives an opportunity to build something new, something that's really uh, attractive for people who are going to be the FIFO contingent of our workforce to want to come and work for us. Um, so that's a really big incentive as well. So in regional WA, there's been you know, some trouble with labour shortages, supply shortages for construction. Um, is there any concern that um, those might be issues uh, for Alcom with building uh, this accommodation? Yeah, look, we've run a commercial tender process, uh, pretty standard for our company policy, and uh, none of the tenderers have given any major concerns about either supplies or labour. And a lot of that revolves around just the timing of the project. So, you know, we're going to announce the successful tenderers within the next few weeks uh, and, and months for the actual construction. And what's favourable for the tenderers that are in the the top one or two positions for these for this work is that they've just come off another project or the timing is beneficial for them to just move on to our project so really a lot of it's about the timing it's not an enormous camp we're talking a 250 person camp so it's a fairly manageable construction project Liam Franklin is the head of Australian operations for all chem who was speaking with Jamie Tanu Two minutes to one. The company behind a proposed vanadium mine and processing plant in WA's Midwest has started building an electrolyte manufacturing facility in Perth. Australian Vanadium Limited has appointed an engineering group and expects to produce vanadium electrolyte for use in vanadium flow batteries by November this year. Vanadium flow batteries are used to store solar and wind electricity and they replace lead acid batteries or diesel generators. The company hopes its new Perth facility will produce enough high-purity vanadium electrolyte to power 4,400 homes at night. Let's head to Mouche now. Numbers were down by almost 2,500 head at the sheep sale at Mouche today. A total of 4,129 sheep and lambs were yarded. Terry Birkin was there. Terry, can you run through the details, please? A lot of sale today consisting mainly of old season lambs and an increased number of new season lambs, mostly lightweights with a few pens of trade weights on offer. The main reduction was in supplies of older sheep with only 639 head. Most categories of old season lambs sold to a cheaper trend, easing $8 to $10, while heavy lambs declined notably, easing up to $20 a head. The mutton market also softened around $10 a head with not all buyers participating. Lightweight new season lambs range from $35 to $60, while trade weights selling from $70 to $105 a head. Old season lambs eased with light stores returning $10 to $45, while air freight weights sold from $45 to $62 a head. Trade lambs made $50 to $93, while heavy lambs topped out at $96, and the best ram lambs sold to $60 a head. There were no merino hoggets to quote, however, crossbred hoggets realised $100, and older merino weathers selling to $101 a head. Young rams sold to $98, while slaughter rams held firm, ranging from $20 to $71 a head. Bony ewes made $10 to $40, medium ewes were selling up to $60, and heavy ewes returned $88 with a fleece. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service at New Show. Thank you very much, Terry. That's it for me. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.